Well, what a privilege it is to open God's Word and to bring the Word of God to you this morning. As you can imagine, we will be in Luke chapter 10, continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke. And what a sweet study this is for us, tracing the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we love. We just cannot get enough of the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot hear enough about him. Uh, there are so many delights in him and in his teaching, in his ministering. And so we, we turn again now our attention uh, to worship the Lord Jesus from Luke chapter 10. And we'll be looking at verses 21 down through 24. Follow along as I read. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is the word of the living God. Amen. Title of our sermon is What Makes Jesus Happy? What Makes Jesus Happy? Our Lord is known uh, most often as the the man of sorrows. The man of sorrows. He was well acquainted with grief, as Isaiah tells us. Yet, while that is a predominant focus in our Lord's life, that is not the focus of our text. In this passage, we learn what makes Jesus joyful. We see the joy of Jesus. In fact, this is the only place in the Gospels that tell us that Jesus rejoiced. Of course, you could think outside the Gospels of Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. But here we have an explicit statement that Jesus rejoiced. Jesus rejoiced. Now, surely his entire life was a life of joy in God. And this does not mean that this is the only time he rejoiced. Yet, because it is the only reference in the Gospels, it demands our special attention and meditation. We would do well to know what makes Jesus rejoice like this. It is likely, then, a secret to deep and lasting and sustaining joy in us as well, if we can understand it. Uh, Just to recap what we've been studying in Luke chapter 10, this is in a big section here, starting in verse 1, verses 1 to 16 told us about the servants of salvation. Jesus sends out the 72 and he, uh, they they minister, they, they heal, they cast out demons, they proclaim the message of the kingdom. There are some who reject them and there's some who respond to the message. Then we saw they return and they're joyful. In verses 17 to 20, we looked at the sweetness of salvation. They are so excited over the success ministerially that they've had and the authority that they've been given. And Jesus says, that's all well and good, but 
Rejoice even more so that your names are written in heaven, that you're saved. It's the sweetness of salvation we saw. And then now, verses 21 to 24, we come to the sovereignty of salvation, the sovereignty of salvation. Now, this passage that we're going to look at this morning is one of the most straightforward passages about the sovereignty of God in salvation in the Bible. And the best of all is that it comes from the mouth of Jesus. You know, we affirm uh, Calvinism, not because John Calvin or any other person taught it, but because we believe it is biblical. It is born out of faithful biblical exegesis and exposition. And it comes from the very mouth of Jesus. We would be anachronistic to say that Jesus was a Calvinist because Calvin didn't live yet. And that formulation of doctrine didn't happen yet. But those fundamental truths that they articulated then about God's sovereignty and salvation, that God is the sole worker in saving sinners, that that was articulated and taught and rejoiced in by even our Lord. These truths are taught here by our Lord, not uh, all of them in their totality, but we get a sense of them here. Now, notice the context. The disciples were rejoicing in verse 17 when they returned from their mission strip, we might call it. And now Jesus rejoices in verse 21. So you can see the sections. They rejoice, verse 17. Jesus rejoices, verse 21. But the cause of Jesus rejoicing is a hidden spring that will never dry up, no matter the external circumstances. These reasons for joy can be your hidden food to nourish you even in the most desperate of times. And this joy will fill you to satisfaction so that you will not be turned aside by the siren song of other idols if you can be satisfied in what Jesus finds satisfaction in. So we want to look at these verses and see three reasons to rejoice so that you might be sustained no matter the trial and satisfied no matter the temptation. Three reasons to rejoice so that you might be sustained no matter the trial and satisfied no matter the temptation. We want to look at Trinitarian rejoicing, Trinitarian relationship, and finally Trinitarian revelation. Let's first consider the reason to rejoice, and that being Trinitarian rejoicing. (laughs) Verse 21, look there again. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. If you're not, little flock, this will be our longest point. So (laughs) we're going to take most of our time here. And you'll see those others kind of slot right into place after we can put this in its place. Notice the context of this joy. The beginning of verse 21, it tells us, in that same hour. What hour? Well, the hour of the the, the 72 returning and them rejoicing and Jesus' instruction to them that they should rejoice most that their names are written in heaven. So the context says that we are talking about personal, individual salvation. And so... uh, That means what Jesus is rejoicing about when he talks about hiding and revealing relates to personal, individual salvation. That's what Jesus is rejoicing about. That's important to note. It's also important to know the broader context of the 72 going out, because when they went out, Jesus prepared them that some would respond to their message and receive the message 
and peace would rest on that house and some would reject that message. And for those, they would wipe the dust off their feet. And so in this context, the message of the kingdom goes out. Some respond in receiving, some reject. And then Jesus rejoices uh, or uh, the disciples rejoice in their success. And then he says, rejoice that you are saved, that your names are written in heaven. And now he's going to rejoice in the sovereignty of God in salvation. So that's what we're talking about here. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I want you to notice the word Luke uses for rejoice. Now, it just in your English text, it looks like rejoice. Yeah, great. It is kind of a less common word, though, for rejoice in the New Testament. It is a synonym, to be sure. It means rejoice. Don't worry. But it's kind of an intense word for rejoicing. We might say it means to be exceedingly joyful, to be overjoyed. So this is, this is an intense joy. It likely showed up on his face as well as in his heart. This joy then deserves our attention. But why call it Trinitarian rejoicing? Well, look at the text. It's called that, I refer to it as Trinitarian, because we see Jesus the Son rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, and then he thanks the Father. So you can see the Son, the Spirit, and the Father in this verse. It is very Trinitarian. Jesus is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, and he shows gratitude to the Father. So this rejoicing, therefore, is Trinitarian rejoicing. We just speak about the persons of the Triune God. We believe in one God revealed in three persons, one divine essence, eternally existing in three distinct persons, subsisting in three distinct persons. The Father is, we say, unbegotten. He has an only begotten son. The father, to be father, has always had a son. In order to be a father, you must have a son. <laughs> and forever, the father has been, uh, has had a, uh, has been well pleased with his son, delighted in him. The father rejoices in the son. The son, the person of the son, truly God, is the only begotten of the Father. This is what distinguishes the Son from the Father. The Son eternally receives his life from the Father. He doesn't come into existence, uh, but this is an eternal begetting. This is an eternal giving and communicating uh, to the Son. He has always had a Father, the Son. He has always rejoiced in being the beloved of the Father for all eternity, the Son has had the love of the Father lavished upon him and enjoyed that communion and fellowship. The Spirit then proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Spirit expresses the love of the Father and the Son. In Romans 5, 5, we have this interesting statement. We read that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's speaking there, but it's indicative of the Spirit's role. The love of God is expressed through the Holy Spirit. He makes known the love of the, and joy of the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father. So whatever this joy is that Jesus is having and rejoicing, it is a Trinitarian joy. It is a joy, we might say, at the heart of the universe. We are deeping into deep waters or diving into deep waters this morning. Now, what is it then that Jesus, the Son, rejoices about? Look at the text again. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Just stop there. Jesus rejoices in God. 
He rejoices that God is his father. This shows the intimacy of their relationship. But in addition to that, he refers to the father as Lord of heaven and earth. So think of heaven and earth as uh, like two uh, ends of the spectrum. It includes everything in between. Uh, So it's two extremes. So it's everything. He's Lord of everything, everywhere, at all times. And Lord speaks to his mastery, his sovereignty. So he's really rejoicing that God is sovereign. Paul will speak in a similar way in, in Athens, Acts 17, 25, 24. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He's the sovereign over all. But notice that his joy focuses then primarily in the sovereignty of God in salvation. He addresses God as father as sovereign over heaven and earth. And then he says this, I thank you that. I thank you that what? You have hidden these things. What things? Well, remember our context, rejoicing in personal individual salvation. What were the disciples going out and proclaiming? The kingdom message, some received, some rejected. You, you have hidden these things, we might say the gospel message, from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And notice the shocking truth over which Jesus rejoices here. And finds intense joy in. Step back for a moment and realize what it is that Jesus is rejoicing about. That Jesus is exceedingly joyful over the fact that God hides the truth of the gospel from some people leading to their eternal damnation. Whoa. That is Jesus's joy. But it goes even beyond that. It's not that alone. He also rejoices that God has revealed the gospel truth to some who will be saved. Jesus then is rejoicing over the doctrine of the absolute, unquestioned sovereignty of God in salvation. That's what he's excited about. This is what the Redeemer rejoices in. We might say that Jesus is exalting over election and reprobation. We think, well, how how can that be? I mean, how is that possible? How can a person rejoice in that? Let's take a closer look. He says, you have hidden these things. I thank you that you have hidden these things. We said what these things are, but don't just, just the simple fact that he is affirming that God hides the truth from some people. If you don't believe this passage, think of some other places where this is also taught. Isaiah chapter six, when Isaiah has this great vision of the glory and holiness of God, and he is then commissioned to go and preach. And here's the great ministry he gets to have. (laughs) Isaiah 6, verse 9. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. And And their eyes heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Yikes. Isaiah goes, okay, Lord, how long will this last? And he just says, it's going to be a long time. And so there's this hardening ministry. There's this hiding ministry of the word. Uh, Second Thessalonians, second Thessalonians, 
You go there. Here's the context. Paul is speaking about the day of the Lord, that that future time we would call the tribulation or Jacob's trouble, the seven year period of God's wrath. And during that time, there will be this individual that's manifested. He's called the man of lawlessness. He goes by many names. He will deceive many people with false signs. But here we see in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, that during that time, it says this about this man. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Whoa. I mean, that's an intense verse. They, but notice here, even the, the, the care with which Paul writes, because we might quickly be tempted to think, well, then no one's responsible. If God is hiding truth, if he is allowing a deception to take place so that they do not believe the truth, then how is anyone responsible? But notice what he says. He says, they refused to love the truth and so be saved. They are responsible. They are culpable. Though God is sovereign, they refuse. I do not want to love the truth. That's the idea. That's this, this tight fist rejection. Not only that, he says, they did not believe the truth and instead they had pleasure in unrighteousness. Their delight was sin, unrighteousness, anything but worshiping the true God. And so he's saying they're culpable for that despite this hardening. God is sovereign over these things. We can look at other places, but those two are some heavy hitting passages. And so we must keep this, we might call it balance, I guess, in place that while God hides these truths, man who rejects them and is blind to them is still responsible. The technical term we would call this is in theology is compatibilism because you hear the word compatible, that God's meticulous sovereignty over salvation and all things is compatible, we're saying, with human responsibility for actions. That in some way, not that we can clearly understand that, but that the Bible teaches both, that man is responsible for responding to the gospel and is responsible for his sin and culpable for his love of unrighteousness. And yet at the same time, that is compatible with God's predetermining and choosing whom he will reveal truth to and whom he will hide the truth from. And this is what Jesus exalts over. But notice further, we see this borne out in the text here, this responsibility. Notice the objects of the hiding of truth. It is the wise and understanding. Now, he was gonna, he's gonna contrast this with the, the revealing it to children, But this is not a contrast between the educated and the uneducated, but of the proud and the humble. When he says the wise and understanding, these are the arrogant, the proud, the know-it-alls. No doubt, likely in close context here, the religious leaders who think they know and they're proud. Remember, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that it is the, the poor in spirit whose is the kingdom of heaven. They have nothing. They come to God with nothing and he provides everything. But here are those who are wise and understanding in their own eyes. And so for them, the truth is hidden. Carther writes this, God has hidden spiritual truth so that it is not discoverable by the most elevated human wisdom apart from his self-revelation in scripture and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in minds. 
I came across a, a Spurgeon sermon on this, and he had a great quote here. Just It helps us to temper our expectations when we see people not responding to the gospel. Here's what he says. He says, There must be a work of the Father through the Holy Ghost upon each intellect and mind, ere it can perceive the truth as it is in Jesus. Hence, when unregenerate men tell us that they cannot see the beauty of the gospel, we are not at all astonished. We never thought that they could. And when boastful men of culture declare that the old-fashioned gospel is unworthy of the 19th century with all its enlightenment, we are not surprised, for we knew that they would, do, would think so. Blind men are little pleased with color, and deaf men care little for music. Mm. So he's saying, hey, when those whom you're tempted to envy or want their respect in the culture, and they're going, you guys, you believe that? You believe that message? You, you think, think there's beauty in that message? We go, we didn't expect you to see it. You're dead. You're dead in sin. You're, the truth is hidden from you right now. So it, it totally lines up with our doctrine, what we understand the scriptures to teach. So while God is hiding the truth and even hardening in other passages, we also know that there is a will for rejection by these same people. Now, no doubt, this is a difficult truth for us. It raises all kinds of questions. Many we won't be able to address. Hopefully some we will. Yet it is at its most basic foundation, a cause for worship. It's a cause for rejoicing. I mean, at least we can say it was for Jesus. Now, there's no doubt a complexity in this rejoicing. Scriptures tell us that God nor we should delight in the death of the wicked, but we can rejoice in God's sovereign will to redeem some and reject others in order to showcase his glory to vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. Well, while God does hide the truth from the proud, the contrast here is that he reveals the truth, uh, these things, to little children. And believers at times are referred to as children. It speaks to their humility, their trusting nature. This is the idea here. He's speaking of true believers. Now, it's interesting. In Greek, this, this words for, the words for hidden and revealed sound very similar. It, it's a wordplay. It's to say, these words sound so similar, but they are so different. One is hiding, one is revealing. They are opposites, though they sound similar. Apocrypsis and apocalypsis. Those are the two words. They sound very similar, and yet how different they are. One is hiding, one is revealing. Now, we can jump forward and see how Paul expresses this concept that Jesus is rejoicing in in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and Paul rejoices in it. He joins in the joy of Jesus over these things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's a great parallel passage for this text. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Paul writes, For consider your calling, brothers. Now, he means your, your effectual calling. God's drawing you to salvation and making you a Christian. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here's whom God reveals the truth to. Relative nobodies. Notice his last phrase then. Jesus in, back in Luke 10, verse 21. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. For such was your gracious will. The word for here, it gives the reason for the Father's hiding from some and revealing to others. Why does God elect some to be saved and pass over others in reprobation? Well, the way ESV translates it, because it is his gracious will. You'll notice in some other translations, it'll say it was well-pleasing or it was your good pleasure or you were pleased to do so. And I like that. It speaks to God's pleasure. It speaks to God's uh, delight in this. It was well-pleasing to him. And we might put it in just very plain terms. Yes, Father, because you wanted to. That's what he's saying. And we might say it like this, that what God wants is always right. What God wants is always right. We should be glad that the one who wields ultimate sovereignty is good, is wise, is perfect, is gracious. And so... We can see this in other places. Paul in Ephesians 1, he will talk about for the glory of God's grace, that God does what he does in a Trinitarian salvation. One writer said this, Jesus rejoices in the goodness and rightness and beauty of God's plan. Now here's where you must hold on to see why this can be a cause of rejoicing. Because no doubt we struggle. We go, I, okay, I know what the text is saying. I can see the words. I can read them. But how can I rejoice in this? How can I see this as something worthy to rejoice in? Well, you're in good company. Jonathan Edwards, one of the America's greatest theologians, he began his Christian life hating this doctrine. Listen to... Uh, Edwards reflect on this change that occurred in him. He says this, quote, From my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty and choosing whom he would to eternal life and rejecting whom he pleased, leaving them eternally to perish and be everlastingly tormented in hell. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me, but I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to the sovereignty of God and his justice in thus eternally disposing of men according to his sovereign pleasure, but never could give an account of how or by what means I was thus convinced, not in the least imagining at the time, nor a long time after, that there was any extraordinary influence of God's spirit in it, but only that now I saw further and my reason apprehended the justice and reasonableness of it. However, my mind rested in it, and it put an end to all those cavils and objections. And there has been a wonderful alteration in my mind with respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty from that day to this, so that I scarce ever have found so much as the rising of an objection against it. 
In the most absolute sense, in God showing mercy to whom he will show mercy and hardening whom he will, God's absolute sovereignty and justice with respect to salvation and damnation is what my mind seems to rest assured of as much as anything that I see with my eyes. At least it is so at times. I have often since not only had a conviction, but a delightful conviction. The doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. And then he says this, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. But my first conviction was not so. Wow, what a transformation to say, I hated this doctrine, but now I've come to be convinced of it, and not only convinced, but to delight in it. And I love to describe this doctrine. What made such a change in Edwards? He explains in another place, in a sermon entitled, God's Sovereignty and the Salvation of Men, that God exercises sovereignty and salvation because, quote, it was his original design to make a manifestation of his glory as it is. What does he mean by that? He means that the very purpose of God's creation is to display who he is, to manifest his glory. His glory is the sum total of his attributes. It is his greatness. That is God's highest end in what he does, is to make himself known to creatures. God desired to show forth the fullest and clearest manifestation of his glory, of his character. But for God to clearly and fully manifest his glory to his creatures, he must show forth all of his divine perfections. In other words, if God did not display all of his perfections, his attributes to his creatures, then his glory would not be fully displayed and thus it would be diminished. And therefore, our joy would be diminished for those who know him. See, for us to have joy, we must know God as he is. And so it is a good thing for God to display all of who he is to us. Knowing and seeing the glory of God is the greatest good and most satisfying delight. So therefore, for God to display justice as well as mercy, there had to be those upon whom he might display his mercy and those upon whom he would display his justice. Listen to Edwards again. He says, quote, in this same sermon, if God's wisdom be manifested and not his holiness... Listen to, what he, listen to his logic. The glory of his wisdom would not be manifested as it is. For one part of the glory of the attribute of divine wisdom is that it is a holy wisdom. So if his holiness were manifested and not his wisdom, the glory of his holiness would not be manifested as it is. For one thing which belongs to the glory of God's holiness is that it is a wise holiness. You see what he's doing here. So it is with respect to the attributes of mercy and justice. The glory of one attribute cannot be manifested as it is without the manifestation of another. So in other words, he's saying you can't even understand wisdom if it's not a holy wisdom. Right. And and he's just trying to like boil it down real simple for us because he's just picking two perfections. And he's just saying this, but really we have to understand that every single perfection of God is interrelated. It's like a spider web. You cannot pull one little strand out and not have the whole thing collapse and lose its structure. 
God is what we call simple, not uh, simplistic or easy to understand, but he's simple in that he's not composed of parts. He, God is all that he has. And so when we think of God's attributes, we as finite creatures have to parcel them out and think, okay, this week we're going to study the perfection of holiness. This week we're going to study, but that is not how God actually is in himself. He's not composed of parts or perfections or attributes. He is all that he has. So we might say it like this, like God cannot deactivate certain attributes to reveal himself to us. He can't be like, okay, I'm going to just create the world and turn off justice. Turn off these other things. Uh, No, that is not who God is. I I would dare say that it's not even possible for God to display himself to his creatures and not show off all of his divine perfections. Now, just pause for a second and just appreciate. Can you see how God-centered this kind of theology is that Edwards is getting at? I mean, just think how different this is from what a lot of people are taught or heard, it, where everything is about man. It is about, uh, yeah, it's just very man-centered. But here, we see that the very heartbeat of the universe is God. It is about God, the God-centeredness of God. That God is about himself, primarily. And we are the overflow of that. We get to benefit from seeing how great God is, but God is most committed to himself and his own glory, because that is the greatest good. And it just so happens that it is such a good thing for God to be about himself, because that is where the greatest joy is. God has been satisfied in himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, for all eternity. Loving one another, joy, rejoicing in one another, communicating this with one another. And then it's no fault of a fountain for, to overflow and to create so that we might enjoy him as well. It puts God at the center of the universe and not man. Paul refers to the triune God in 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16 as the blessed God, the blessed God or the happy God, the God who is so contented in himself, who rejoices in himself. I mean, wouldn't you love to know this God who is the ultimate source and fountain of joy? I mean, this is the God of the Bible, the God of intense joy and blessedness. Everyone seeks for joy. Everyone seeks for pleasure. The only difference is that they seek for it in different ways. Everyone is a worshiper. The difference is what is the object of their worship. And the Bible teaches us that that the God of the Bible, the true God who made everything, is the source of ultimate joy and satisfaction to know him. To know him means you must know all of him, his justice and his mercy. I think one of the closest passages we get to just cracking the door on this a little bit more is in Romans 9, Romans 9 verses 22 to 24. It is here that Paul actually addresses some objections to this kind of teaching. And just think about the logic then. If Paul is saying, hey, you might have this objection and you might have that objection, you know that you're understanding him correctly to be actually teaching what he's saying. 
Like no one, if he, if he wasn't teaching that God is sovereign over everything and over who's saved and who's not, then no one would raise the objections. Hey, that's not fair. But the fact that Paul anticipates objections means that that is exactly what he's teaching. Make no mistake. And so he just kind of cuts people off at the past and goes, I know what you're thinking because I'm teaching this and you're thinking that's not fair. I'll give you an example. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Now, who would ask and who would say that's unjust? Unless that is exactly what he's teaching. Or how about verse 19? You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? No one asks that question unless you're teaching the doctrine that God hides and reveals to whom he will. Here's how he responds. Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, and here's our, here's our key verse here. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known, here's the purpose, here's what he's getting at, why do it like this? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. I put it like this, that the perfections of God perceived are for your pleasure. The perfections of God perceived, seen clearly are for your pleasure. Here's what he's saying. He's saying there, not, there must be a contrast so that those who are vessels of mercy whom God has lavished his grace upon may see the fullness of who God is, the fullness of his glory, not only his mercy, but have a contrast of justice as well and his wrath against evil and sin. They know what they deserved, but they know what they've received. And this will redound to the praise of God for the elect, for those whom God graciously saves. Now, it is one thing to affirm divine sovereignty. It is another to rejoice in it. And Jesus is our model for rejoicing in the doctrines of sovereign grace. Are you as joyful over God's sovereignty as Jesus is? Well, of course not. I mean, are you anything as much as Jesus is? No. But doesn't this teach us at least that his great joy ought to be our great joy as well, when rightly understood? You might say it like this. You know, there's, um, there's, a, there's a term for this. When someone comes to first learn of the doctrines of grace, we call them, or sometimes they're called Calvinism, whatever. We don't call them. You don't like that term. That's okay. Uh, but... You know, people start to learn these things and they get all angry and they get all like abrasive and they just like want to fight with everyone about this. And they call them a cage stage Calvinist. And they call them a cage because they're, they're in the stage where they just need to be locked in a cage until they like mellow out a little bit, you know, until it percolates a little more and then let them out and they'll be gracious. And, you know, the reality though is I would say this, that until you rejoice like Jesus does here, you don't get it. You don't understand the, the, the fundamental truths here. And, and if you're proud about these doctrines, you don't get it either. Because these are the most humbling doctrines in the Bible. And someone who affirms them but is still proud, they don't understand them the way that they ought to. These are profoundly humbling 
doctrines. Why me, God? Why would you choose me? Why would you lavish your love upon me to enjoy you forever when I deserve your wrath? Because I took pleasure in unrighteousness. Phil Riken says this, Luke is showing us the joy at the heart of the universe, the rejoicing that takes place within the Godhead, where God is both the subject and the object of his own joy, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, glory in one another. This is the joy that you and I can experience as well. The joy of knowing the sovereign triune God who delights to manifest the sweet display of his fullness for your good. This is a joy that will sustain you no matter the trial and satisfy you no matter the temptation. It is a glittering gem of joy for Jesus. It's meant to produce intense joy in your inner being and express itself in profound gratitude and profound humility. Notice he says, I thank you. You know, joy in us leads to thanksgiving to God for what he's done. And so really, I think the key to understanding how to rejoice in this doctrine, this difficult doctrine we might call it, is that we understand why God does it this way. It is to manifest the fullness of his character and being. It is so that we get more of God. We get more understanding of who God is. We get to see more of his perfections. And so Jesus is incredibly God-centered. And so he rejoices exceedingly. He's overjoyed that God has orchestrated and crafted a plan so that he receives the maximal amount of glory by displaying the maximal effect of his character and perfections. And so for that, Jesus rejoices in these doctrines. It is because of what they lead to, a God-centeredness. They lead to a God-exalting theology and glorification and gratitude to God. And so therefore, that is why he rejoices. And I think that is the key for us to then rejoice in these doctrines as well. So first cause, reason for rejoicing is Trinitarian rejoicing. Trinitarian rejoicing. Secondly, let's consider Trinitarian relationship. Trinitarian relationship. Look at verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, I just want you to know, this is like, this is the joy of being a pastor, to being your pastor. This verse just like, I spent so much time on this verse and I can only give you so much. There's so many little like details and nuance to this verse of just the profundity of the the eternal relationship of the Trinity here that is so rich and deep, but it's just like, okay, you just got to leave some stuff on the cutting room floor. And there's just so much here to think. He's expressing for us just profound truth about how the father and the son know each other in such a profound way that is not possible for anyone else. Notice, let's just, just look, notice a few things here. All things have been handed over to me by my father. This, that alone is one of the strongest uh, statements of the deity of Christ. What All things have been handed over to me, my father. Who could say that but God alone? This is as clear as any, a claim to be God. The son has all authority just as the father has all authority. The father and the son are both equally sovereign They share one will as the divine creator. We also see a Trinitarian intimacy in this verse. Look at the next phrase. No one knows who the son is except the father or who the father is except the son. There's like this insider knowledge in the Trinity. 
You know, we see God as he is, like, revealed to us through the creation because God creates. And we, we see things about him revealed because he does things in the creation. But, but before creation, God is who he is. He, he has eternally existed. And so this Trinitarian relationship is what Jesus is expressing here. There is an exclusive, a comprehensive, an exhaustive, and an intimate relationship among Father, Son, and Spirit. Only one who is God can know God entirely. Right? Just think about this. I mean, to really know God, you have to be God. <laughs> you have to be eternal, to be infinite, to grasp and know the infinite. God is incomprehensible to us, meaning we cannot fully grasp him, though he is truly knowable, but he's not incomprehensible to himself. He knows himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. There's a unique intimacy. There's a knowledge shared among the persons that is not shared among anyone else. There's a knowledge God has of himself that is, we might say, one of a kind. No finite creature can know God the way he knows himself. Think about like trying to pour the ocean into a teacup. It's like, get your little cup here and just dump it on there. You can't do it because there's only so much capacity to take in. But God is boundless. He's infinite. And so he can actually know himself. You would need a bigger cup and a bigger cup and a bigger cup and a bigger cup and a bigger cup. And even if your cup continues to expand, it will never be infinite. It will never be boundless because you're finite. But here's the joy of heaven. Here's the joy of heaven. That our knowledge of God doesn't remain static. It doesn't remain. It's, it's not as though whatever your knowledge of God was when you die or the rapture or the kingdom, you know, that, that just like burnt, you're right there. You know, I'm at 50%. You know, like, uh, it continues to increase. Why? Because in heaven, in the intermediate state, we might call it, where those believers who died uh, to be with the Lord are presently now, and as well as the new heavens and new earth, which are recreated and regenerated when the Lord Jesus returns, that those times will be a time of increasing knowledge of God, insight about who God is, and growth. And God will expand our cup. He will grow our cup so that it's always full, and yet it's always growing bigger. It's like complete satisfaction. And you go, how could I possibly take in more of God and be more satisfied? I'm, I'm so full. And then God just goes, expands it, you know, from a solo cup to a, you know, what are those new fads? I, I, the Stanley cup. You know, it's like, there you go. It's like expands out further. And, and it's just bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's a big gulp, you know, it's like, and, and it just continues to grow as we know more of God. I mean, just incredible to think about this this intimacy, this relationship that has been the Trinity's relationship and we just get to have some and more and more and more. And, and we'll never get bored of God because God is infinite. He's boundless and we're always gonna be finite, always knowing more, always growing in appreciation. It will be incredible mm, to be there, to be regenerated or to, be, to have the earth regenerated, to be resurrected, to be with our Lord. This is what is promised to us. And so this is a joy that can sustain you, as we say, no matter the trial and satisfy you no matter the temptation. I mean, don't you want to just know God? I mean, knowing God helps you through any difficult uh, trial. And, and it also 
satisfies you so that when some temptation comes that would maybe normally uh, lead you to indulge or sin in some way, that you go, I'm just so full. I don't want that. I so cherish this desire for God, this love for God that I've seen. I know that will diminish it. Get out of here. I want him. And that's the Christian life. As you know more of him, you take in more of him, you want less of your sin. You hate it because you see how good he is. You see that this is the very purpose of the universe, to know God. So anything that hinders you from that, you want to slay it. You want to kill it. And so this is how this becomes even a motivation for holiness and fighting the fight of faith and, and fighting against our sin. It is an incredible motivation because we want to know God. We want to have this communion with him, a vibrant, dynamic relationship with Jesus. And finally, let's notice Trinitarian re- revelation. Trinitarian revelation. I kind of held back this last phrase of verse 23 because as profound a cause of worship and wonder it is for God to have this unique Trinitarian relationship. Notice the word towards the end of verse 22, and, and, and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. I mean, true believers are the recipients of this revelation, of this Trinitarian revelation that you can know God. Scott Swain, in his book on the Trinity, he says, the only reason we come to know the persons of the Trinity is that they name themselves in our hearing. I like that. They name themselves in our hearing, Father, Son, Spirit. It is for God to choose whom he will reveal himself in a saving way. Jesus, and of course, there's other passages here it's saying Jesus, the Son chooses to reveal him. Of course, other passages speak of the Father revealing the Son. Of course, the Spirit does the same. There's a unity in all the works of God. All three persons work in them. Notice also from this that it is the Son who is the revelation of God. He has explained God to us. He's the perfect expression of the character of God. And another implication is the exclusivity of Jesus. You can only come through Jesus because if you want to enter into this triune relationship, it only comes through the Son who reveals God. And so salvation, we might say, is the participation in the all-satisfying love and intimacy of the triune God who's always existed, who's always been satisfied. As Henry Scrugel wrote a long time ago in his book, that salvation is the life of God in the soul of man. The life of God in the soul of man. The eternal triune life of God, satisfying life, loving life, communicating life. Put into your soul. How satisfying is that? Listen to 1 John 1, 3. John writes, our fellowship, our participation is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This ties us back to verse 20. Blessed are you, as your names are written in heaven. We might say it like this. Blessed are you that you have the saving knowledge of God, that you have had the Son reveal himself to you. And then, of course, verses 23 to 24 continue this line of thought that this Trinitarian revelation is a great privilege. Verse 23, then turning to the disciples He said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. He used the word blessed. It it was used in the Beatitudes. It speaks to our joy, our happiness in our condition. How happy, how rejoiced we should be, rejoicing we should be rather. 
that we see what we see. They're spoken to privately here because Jesus knows what they've experienced. He knows they've come to know him. They've come to know God. And he says, guys, the moment you sit in history, just appreciate the kings and prophets who longed to see this day. There's a lot of great things about today, running water, you know, uh, clean water, indoor plumbing, you know, uh, whatever, Chick-fil-A, <laughs> so, so many different things, uh, fast food. Uh, but to have the whole scriptures, oh, what a privilege. But even they sat at a point that was even before our time, and yet even they had such great privilege Revelation, 1 Peter 1, verse 10. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, examining what person or, or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories, subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Or you think of John chapter 8, John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham was looking forward for the Messiah. Other passages, Hebrews 11, these saints looked forward to the promises, but they didn't see their actualization. This is great. J.C. Rouse says this about the time of these disciples Jesus is speaking to, he says, the difference between what the prophets and kings saw and what we see is the difference of twilight and noonday, of winter and summer, of the mind of a child and the mind of a full-grown man. Just incredible revelation, privilege. And of course, we've come to see the revelation of Jesus even more clearly and who the triune God is. is that doctrine has been formulated with the rest of the New Testament, clarified if you have a Bible and you're able to see and understand what it says and savor that truth, you are blessed. What else do you need? <laughs> All my needs are met. All my needs are met. This is the joy that will sustain you no matter the trial and satisfy you no matter the temptation. Don't you appreciate, can't you appreciate that this joy, all three of these are not dependent on your circumstances? Whatever's happening, good or bad, these are constants. The joy of Trinitarian rejoicing, the rejoicing of the Trinitarian relationship that we get to be part of, the joy of Trinitarian revelation that's been given to us, that we see what we see. All these are incredible, precious blessings for us to rejoice in. They are that secret fountain that satisfies us. They're that hidden food that will nourish us when others are weary. And so we come back to them time and time again, and they just satisfy our hearts. You know, in Matthew's gospel, he also speaks of this. He, he doesn't so much speak of Jesus' rejoicing, though no doubt he was. He, he focuses on Jesus praising God for hiding the truth and revealing it. But he adds something that Luke doesn't add. Right after this statement of Jesus about the so profound sovereignty of God, he then says this, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
I mean, Jesus can preach the most sovereignty of God message in Matthew and then offer the gospel and say, whoever wants to come, just come. There, we must see this. We must be this way. That we can both say God is meticulously, absolutely sovereign. And yet, come. You just come. You don't worry about that. Don't worry if there's an E written on your back for elect. <laughs> you just come. Do you want Christ? That is an indication he's working in your heart. Do you want to be saved? Do you want to know God? Then come and enjoy him and take delight in him. Jesus has come. And so we must do the same. We must tell people, come, just come. Just, re- just know God. Pursue him. What a perfect preacher he was. What a perfect model he is of rejoicing in these things and also proclaiming them with the perfect balance. These truths should do a number of things for you. Humility, joy, thanksgiving, praise, and even a passion for evangelism that we would then give out the free offer of the gospel, knowing that God will reveal the truth to those whom he desires to. For some, this doctrine is like a Rubik's Cube. If you've ever played with one of those before, you've got these colors, you've got a, there's different sizes actually, and you know, and you're trying to put it together. One time I just had to, like, I have to do this once in my life, you know. So I got online, I cheated, and I just found, like, the instructions. And I was like, okay, first you do the cross. And then you're, just like, then you're, like, doing the things. And it took me forever. But I eventually did it. And I was like, what? I did it. It's possible. You know, some people play with these things and for a while. And they just give up in frustration. I can't figure it out. Some of you may think, oh, it's not even possible until you show them a video of someone doing it in three seconds behind their back, blindfolded. You know, it's like, What? <laughs> Those who persist, though, there's a satisfaction in seeing it come together. And, and, and my point here is not that we will solve the sovereignty of God and responsibility of man. We may not fully solve it or the Trinity, but we don't have to solve it in order to be satisfied in it. God is not a problem to be solved. God is a pleasure to be satisfied in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a pleasure to be savored and satisfied in. And Lord, we pray that even this morning we would do so. We would respond with savor of Christ, savoring him, savoring your sovereignty, savoring your lavish grace to us, savoring your justice and your mercy. We thank you that you have chosen us, that you have shown grace to us. And Lord, may we be bold in giving the free offer of the gospel because Jesus did, because he Welcome sinners to come and know God. Lord, it is for us to trust that you do all things well and to follow what you have revealed to be your will, that sinners would be evangelized and that you will save whom you will save. And Lord, we're just thankful to be a part of the number that we'll get to enjoy our cup being expanded because our knowledge of you is increased. As we perceive more of your perfections, our pleasure deepens, widens, grows. And so, Lord, satisfy us, Lord, so that we are not lured away various temptations and sustain us with this joy that we might not sink in our trials. I thank you and give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.